Well, good morning. Well, we're glad you've joined us here this morning at Living Stones as well as online. Just delighted to have you here. I want to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to Proverbs chapter 31. We're going to look at the first nine verses together. How many realize that we're kind of living in a day where one uh, does not consider how they live to be any sort of measure of how well they're going to lead people? Isn't that true? Like, in other words, there's really no sense of the necessity, as, as far as our culture is concerned, to be a person who has any sort of moral integrity as a leader. Just anybody can lead today. And yet, that has not always been the way it's been viewed historically in the past, and also biblically. Wisdom literature, a person's moral life has a huge impact on how they will actually affect influence, lead, govern other people. One of the greatest moral reformers in British history is probably a man by the name of William Wilberforce. He served as a member of parliament for 28 years. How many have ever heard the name William Wilberforce? Wilberforce was one of the men that was responsible for the abolition of slavery. And Winston Churchill described him in his hour, because he died in 1833, but in that latter part of the 18th century and the early part of the 19th century, Wilberforce was perceived as the conscience of a nation. In Kevin Belmonte's book, A Hero for Humanity, he says, for 20 years he led the fight to abolish the slave trade, a victory which was achieved in the British House of Commons in 1807. 26 years later, and just days before his death in July of 1833, Wilberforce would learn that slavery itself would be abolished throughout the British colonies, a significant uh, element of his whole life work. But to be sure, Wilberforce's labor as an abolitionist dominated the landscape of, landscape of his legacy. There are many other compelling and important facets of his life and character. And I think it's interesting, you know, when I was reading his story, uh, he was an amazing godly family man. He had a great impact on his family. But throughout his life, he championed some 70 different philanthropic initiatives. He was an advocate of child labor laws. He, was an art, he ardently supported the education of the blind and of the deaf. He actually funded hospitals and schools with his own finances. He was a founder of an organization as diverse as the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, actually currently today called the SPCA. He's kind of the originator of that idea. How do how you think? That's quite diverse, isn't it? And he was also a part of the National Gallery of Art. So his interests were widespread. It says good causes had been said stuck to him like pins to a magnet. And were anything that he could help, you know, foster something good in his culture, he was a part of it. Belmonte, later on in his book, says Wilberforce was also able to serve effectively in a climate, in a political climate, deeply skeptical and often hostile to the evangelical Christianity that he was, you know, standing for, he espoused. How many think there was kind of a correlation between our time and his time? He, he was battling the same stuff that we were battling. He was dealing with people like Voltaire and Rousseau and all of these uh, atheist philosophers who uh, I think, I, I don't know if Rousseau later became a Christian, but I know Voltaire never did. But he was battling with people that had a totally uh, humanistic mindset, a secular humanistic mindset. As the Apostle Paul had done in Athens, Wilberforce invoked the literature and philosophy of the times to make points without imagining a large sympathetic majority standing behind him. In other words, 
He knew that he was a minority point of view. He knew that the majority of it, the culture of his day, was not quite where he was camped, and yet he appealed to the, the fashionable thinkers of his day and made arguments for his points. Actually, uh, it served to create a recognition and support for what he considered the vital role that both religion and morality played in society. And I think that's important because, as he said, it is a truth attested by the history of all ages and countries and established on the authority of all of the ablest writers, both ancient and modern, among them Machiavelli and Montetiscu. Now, many of you probably don't recognize these writers. Maybe some of you do. How many know who Machiavelli is? He wrote a book called The Prince and was a very interesting thinker. He talked about the darker side of politics and basically said it's hard to be a good person and be a politician. That's part of his element there. But... Um, some of these philosophers and thinkers of the day, he would actually quote them, people that were not noted for being uh, part of the way he thought, and yet he would utilize their comments because some of them actually established his argument. He says here that, uh, that the religion and morality of a country, especially of a free community, are inseparably connected with its preservation and welfare that the flourishing or declining state is the sure indication of its tendency to prosperity or to decay. It has even been expressly laid down that a people grossly corrupt are incapable of liberty. So what he was basically arguing was that the, the more people moved away from healthy morality, the more they entered into bondage. The further away they came to the true freedom that, you know, which we all love and, and enjoy and we've lived in for so long. And he brought these things out that when you don't have healthy morals in a culture, what you have is decay happening in the culture. Machiavelli, he said, was not considered either as a religious or a moral authority, but was eminently distinguished for his political knowledge and sagacity, which means his wise thoughts. He stated that the rulers of all states, this is Machiavelli, whether kingdoms or commonwealths should take care that religion should be honored and all of its ceremonies preserved, inviolate, to be free, which means to be free or safe from violation. For there is not a more certain symptom of the destruction of states than a contempt for religion and morals. Listen, I want to just repeat that again because it's so powerful. He said, this is Machiavelli, the, the guy that wrote The Prince. He said, you know, there's not a more certain symptom of the destruction of a city-state or a, a community or a province or a nation when they start showing contempt for religion and for morals. I mean, that's kind of powerful stuff. These are people that are not Christians. These are not sympathetic to our viewpoint, folks, but they recognize the value of what morality and what religion brings into the lives of people. Wilberforce believed that the abolition of the slave trade could not have taken place without a concurrent moral reformation to strengthen the consensus that the British slave trade was a tragic national sin. What he was basically saying is, you know, you, it's hard to bring in moral legislation if there's not a moral reformation happening in the lives of people. You know, it begins there. And I think that somehow we've missed this as, as a, a Christian community, that we have to understand that the real transformation of our nation is going to actually begin within us. 
It actually begins within the human heart. It's a change from the inside out. It's how you and I respond to God as we start living the life that we know we need to live. It's not enough to confess something. It's not enough to say I'm a Christian, but it's more important that we live the life so that out of our lives there's transformation coming and it impacts the lives of people around us. There's an incredible need today for godly, moral leadership. And it begins in our homes. It begins in the school. It begins in the halls of churches and in, in, the, in the halls of government. And so we're going to turn in our text today in Proverbs 31, 1 to 9. Here we're going to hear the words of the queen mother speaking to the crown prince who eventually becomes the king. And now we get his reflections of the words that his mother spoke to him that he has kept in his heart and mind that's helped him become a, a leader a ruler, a moral leader. And it's interesting that in the ancient world, in the one person, the king, you have the three executive branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, which really means simply this, that what he said went. He's an autocrat. He's a dictator. He's the one that either brings justice or he doesn't bring justice. His role is so critical for the well-being of the people he's governing and leading. Most scholars agree that Lemuel, who we're going to talk about, is a mystery figure. Nobody knows who he really is. It's not who he is that matters. It's the message that he's conveying to us. As a matter of fact, it has a divine sanction, and we would consider it canonical, which means it has biblical authority, and it's words that you and I need to take to heart. So here he is coming to this role as a king, and he's hearing in the back of his mind, or maybe he's saying this later on as a king, as he remembers the words of his mother. And she leads him to two words of counsel that I believe every leader needs to hear. Now, if you don't think you're a leader, let me just point out something. If you influence a person in that moment, you're a leader. If you are a parent, you're a leader. If you are a person who's operating and managing a company, you're a leader. If you're a person who is involved in the life of the church and are overseeing other people's lives, you're a leader. If you're a person in civic office, either a council person, a mayor, uh, a, a premier, a, a prime minister, you're a leader. These are all elements that you and I need to hear from. And so I'm going to take a look at these, these two words uh, of counsel that every, every one of us needs to follow. It, first of all, is a warning against some of the pitfalls and dangers of leadership. And I would even say dangers as a Christian. Who influences the leader is an issue presented here. And what are some of the distractions that remove a person from being a diligent and a wise leader? Harry Ironside rightly points out, he who rules well over a nation must first be master of himself. Isn't that interesting? What he's basically saying is if you can't self-govern, you can't govern others. If you can't control yourself, how are you going to manage the life of other people? You know, one of the lessons I, I initially teach our younger staff is the number one lesson as an apprentice, I say, if you can't manage yourself, how can you manage other people? So it's all about time management. you got to learn how to manage yourself or you're not going to help other people. And that's a big skill that we all have to learn if we're going to be effective in life. Let's take a look here at Proverbs 31 and beginning in verse 1. I'm just going to look at nine verses today. The sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance his mother taught him. So now we're saying this is inspired by God. Listen, my son. Listen, son of my womb. Listen, my son, the answers to my prayers. Now, 
Here we have a form of parallelism. There's a repetition, but each time it's stated, there's a little more information given to us. The Hebrew word listener, it's the word ma, can be translated what? So Leo Perdue says the Hebrew language, the interpretive pronoun ma, what, may be used as an emphatic rhetorical negative. So some translations start by saying what, as in what are you doing? You know, like, what, son, are you about? It's a challenge. It's a question. It's the idea that, that you're going to do what's right and not do what's wrong. And so the queen mother is pointing out to this child, this crown prince, that he was an answer to her prayer. Now, if you study anything about the Middle Ages, women who became queens, there was a pressure that they would actually sire a son to actually create a, a genealogy, a lineage, so that they would be another heir to the throne of And so here her prayer was, you know, God, provide for me a son. And so here she's telling her son, you have been an answer to my prayers. God heard my cry. You're not here by accident. You're here by divine appointment. Isn't that a beautiful thought? You have a job to do. But can I just move across the eons of time and point this out to all of us? Do you recognize that God himself is outside the boundary of time and that his present moment is all of our human history? His present moment is all of our human history. And in the eons of time, in the mind of God, he actually designed you and I to come into this world at such a time as this. And that you and I have an appointed task to do. And that's why I always say to every person, you know, the most important thing you can do is discern and find out and ask the the designer, the creator of your life, what did he have in mind when he made you? Why did he put certain gifts into your life? And what does he really want you to do with what he's put into your life? You have a purpose before Almighty God, just as King Lemuel had a purpose. Now, it begins with a warning that with the power of leadership comes responsibility. I always say it this way, with every right comes a responsibility. And we need to understand that. You know, it's not about, you know, our rights. I think we get so focused on that. I think rights are important, but with them come responsibilities. Tremper, and, and you know, those, those uh, rights should not be abused. Tremper Longman says the topic of her con- conversation is something that a wise mother, especially the wise mother of a leader, would want to drive home to her child. She's basically saying women and drink are two large temptations to a man with power and money. And so in verse 3, it says, Do not spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. It is not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Richard Clifford says, the importance of the king's mother. A mother of the king in the Canaanite world played a major role in the palace because of her longevity and knowledge of palace politics and undoubtedly her loyalty to her son. She was in a good position to offer him reliable counsel. And she's pointing out to him the dangers of illegitimate sexual relationships as an impediment to effective leadership. Now, we could just pause here and ask ourselves the question, how many leaders in politics or in ministry, or just in the average marriage, have destroyed their credibility and effectiveness in their home, in their sphere of influence, in their realm of leadership? How many? 
And they can go on and on and on. And we see that over and over again. And many of the, uh, the situations that we're seeing today, why do leaders go down? A lot of it is because they have not followed the warnings that are being presented here in the wisdom literature. You know, some people have disqualified themselves from the role of leadership. I think of Edward's, uh, King, England's King Edward VIII. Sorry. How many know his story? You know, he, he was actually uh, the crown prince he, you know, he kind of got into an illicit relationship with a woman who was married. This was her second husband, an American. And, you know, eventually uh, he wanted to marry her, but he was the crown prince. But just before he was going to ask his father, his father died, he immediately became the king of England and so reigned for a couple of years. But he wanted to marry this woman who had now divorced her second husband because she wanted to be married to this guy. And what did he do? In, in English uh, politics, the king or the queen is also the head of the Anglican church. And so the Anglican church, you know, didn't want to do that for obvious reasons. They just felt like that was the wrong thing to do. And secondly, the people in England at that time weren't ready to have someone do that kind of thing. So what did he do? He abdicated from being the king. In other words, he quit his job in a very critical hour and his brother rose in his place to become the king, which eventually was the father of Queen Elizabeth. So we see that people like, you know, can actually lose their realms of responsibility. The wisdom literature, particularly Proverbs, argues that character is at the foundation of true leadership. I'm going to just read a few verses here from Proverbs. Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright guides them but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. The righteousness of the blameless makes their path straight, but the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by their evil desires. Here we see that guidance is given to those who live a life of integrity. How many think it might be important as a leader to have divine guidance? Anybody think that might be important? I think it's critical. But here, here earlier we just read, but the unfaithful are destroyed by what? Their duplicity. So what is duplicity? It's living a double life. It's got a double standard. And when we see leaders who have a double standard to tell people to do one thing, but they do another, they lose credibility with the people they're leading. And usually these are done because they have evil desires. In our text, we see the warning against and the negative consequence of moral failure. I can immediately, two people come to my mind. The first one is King David. Remember, David was the king, and he took Bathsheba as his wife from one of his loyal servants. Now, we have to remember that one of the issues that a king needs to be able to do, and we're going to see that in the verses coming up, is that he has to render just decisions. Now, how many know that what David did to Uriah was unjust? He did the very opposite of what his calling was meant to do. And so David was confronted by God's servant, the prophet Nathan. And remember, Nathan, as Richard Clifford points out, tells a parable of a poor man's lamb confiscated by the wealthy man, which illustrates how such conduct leads to forgetfulness of the person that's the, of the poor person. So here, let's pick up the story of Nathan's confrontation. And I think this took courage on the part of Nathan. 
the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he had came to him, he said, you know, I'm going to tell you a story. He, he, he didn't just tell him, hey, king, you did something bad. He, he tells David a beautiful story to make a point. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, and the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. He shared his food with the lamb. He drank from its cup. He even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now here's David's response. David was indignant. He, was, he burned with anger against that man, and he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Can you see the kingly justice rising up inside of David, right? Verse 6, he must pay that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And now you get the punchline. Verse 7, Nathan said, David, you're that man. What was Nathan saying to him? David, you took Uriah's wife and pregnated her and ultimately had her husband sent by orders into the most dangerous assignment in battle where he was killed. And what was the result? David repented. Aren't you glad David repented? That was a good thing. But I want to just make a statement here because I think this is important we hear this. You know, when you and I repent, the good news is God forgives. I'm so thankful for that. Are you not? Are you not thankful for that? But I want you to know that it still had consequences. And so the consequences for David was simply that the child that was a product of that union, the initial child, died. And then eventually David's children began to emulate and follow in the footsteps of David-like sins. And so David never could fully get extradite, extradite himself from the consequences of what he had done. So what's the moral of the story? Don't sin. Resist. Battle against it. Because you know what? Yes, you know, there's, a, there's such an easy way of thinking about grace. Well, I'll, it doesn't matter. I'll sin, and then God will, I'll just ask God to forgive me. And I'm, I'm just telling you, don't think that way, because you're going to have to deal with consequences. God will forgive you, yes, but there's still the consequences that many times we have to live through. And sometimes, by God's mercy, he redeems them, but there's still challenges that will be presented. And then I think of another example, and I think it's significant. The other example is Solomon. Now, when you go to the book of Proverbs, who, who mostly wrote the Proverbs? Solomon. But you notice in chapter 31, it's not Solomon writing this chapter. I think it would be hypocritical for Solomon to tell us this stuff because he himself fell into the very thing we're being warned against. And we find that this was uh, Solomon's particular downfall. He spent his strength on women. Listen to what it says in 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sid Sidonites, and Hittites. And they were from the nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. In other words, he was making alliances through these marriages. 
So, you know, there was a political acumen that he was doing. It was politically expedient for Solomon to be doing this, but he was doing it at the expense of a moral foundation. And folks, I want to just say this. Sometimes in our lives, we do things because it seems at the time expedient to us. It seems to be advantageous to us. It seems to be, in our minds, the right thing to do. But when it's against the word of the Lord, it's going to cause us tremendous grief, and it does for Solomon. And then it said he had 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as God as the heart of David, his father, had been. And unfortunately, there's no record of Solomon repenting. And we read later his, his uh, oldest son, the kingdom is stripped away from him as God you know, basically said, I won't do it in your t- lifetime, Solomon, but I'm going to do it in the lifetime of your son. And so his, his actually... You know, they had civil conflict in his nation. See, I want to just say something. Sometimes when we do the wrong things, it creates huge problems down the road in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. And then we see the second area of warning was against abusing alcohol or substance abuse. Is this a big problem today? I think it is. The reason given was that the leader would become self-absorbed and focus primarily on meeting his own physical pleasures rather than functioning in his area of responsibility, which is rendering service and justice for the people he's serving. It says here in verse 4, it's not for kings, Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Now, we find in Scripture a number of texts that support the undermining of leadership as an overindulgence in alcohol. How many know that, you know, when you're, when you're abusing alcohol, you're not thinking straight? And Bruce Walke says it this way, liquor befuddles the king's mind, it weakens the will, and drives him to plunder his subjects to pay for his expense, expensive addiction. Now, how many know that that's what happens? You know, that when, we're, when we're inebriated, we're not functioning at our highest capacity. You know, and it weakens our resolve to do the right thing. And that's what his mother was warning against. Hey, you, you have to resist this. In a fact, matter of fact, we have examples in the scripture of people who were abusing alcohol and didn't go well with them. I could think of Noah who overindulged, and uh, that was a terrible thing that happened there. And then you read in 1 Kings 16:9, uh, King Elah, a northern king of Israel, it says, Zimri, one of his officials who had command of half his chariots, plotted against him. Meanwhile, the king was at Tirzah at the time, getting drunk in the home of Arza, the palace administrator at Tirzah. What happened? Zimri came in, struck him down, and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and then he succeeded him as king. What was he doing? He was totally uh, disconnected with his responsibilities. A revolt rose against him, and you know what? He was totally unprepared for what was about to happen. In his drunken state, he was killed. He had no... He had no ability to resist what was going to happen. Isaiah warns that God's judgment is upon those who abuse substances. Isaiah 5.22 says, Woe to those who who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice to the innocent. So what is he saying? You know, the party animals, that's what he's talking about here. They're, They're really, you know, taking, because of their position of authority, they're, they're being bribed by the rich, and the, the poor people are suffering as a result. And Isaiah says, woe to that 
person because God's going to deal with that individual. Let me move on to the second word of counsel, and that's to advocate for those who need help from us. What is the responsibility of those who, who lead? Well, it's to serve those that they're leading. It's, it's to make sure that we do what's right. That's what justice means, doing the right things by people. We are to advocate for justice, especially on behalf of those who are powerless and those who have no one to advocate for them. The queen mother was basically stating that lead, leaders should not be impaired in their duties. In verse 6, she says, Let beer be for those who are perishing, wine for those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now, a number of ideas come to mind as we read these texts. I think there's a number of ideas that have been forwarded to kind of explain these texts. I don't think that the scriptures here are saying, oh, we'll just give all this booze and drugs to the poor people so that they can forget their misery. That's not what it's teaching. Maybe some people think that's what it's teaching, but it's not. Tremper Longman says this, that Lemuel's mother commends the use of alcohol to the poor may be seen in part as a strategy to discourage her royal son. In other words, she may be saying the equivalent of, don't act like those derelicts who drink to forget their hardships. Act like the king you are. The king is the human representative of God who protects the rights of those who lack the power, which are the needy and the destitute. That may be a part of the understanding, but I agree with Harry Ironside, who sees a more subtle message and he says it this way, there's a tinge of an undisguised irony in the sixth and seven verses that must not be overlooked. Strong drink might help the despondent to forget their poverty and to remember their misery no more. But the true remedy is for the judge of the oppressed to hear their cause patiently and render a decision in righteousness as he cannot do it under the power of wine. In other words, what he's saying is they wouldn't have to drink if you did your job. You, they wouldn't be living in this misery if you did your job. Do your job. So people are not suffering like this. And I like that response by uh, Harry Ironside. Well, Bruce Walke sees this as a sarcastic message. And he says, Nevertheless, the command to give intoxins to all who are dying of hunger to anesthetize them permanently is sarcastic. Not a proposed welfare program to provide free beer as an opiate to the masses. But drowning one's sorrow and drink solves nothing. How many have discovered that? It anesthetizes anesthetic effects, merely deepens the drinker's inability to face their problems. And that's the truth. You know, I learned a long time ago, you got problems, face them. Don't run from them. Don't hide from them. They're going to haunt you out. They're going to just grow. You have to address them. Actually, the problems that you're faced with, God is allowing things to happen so you can develop and mature and grow as you address them one by one. So the role of the person who's responsible for the home, for the school, for the church, for the city, for the province or a nation needs to be an advocate for those who are overpowered and overmatched by the resources that others are using to oppress them. Again, hear the Proverbs speaking to leaders regarding the need for doing the right thing or doing justice. Look at Proverbs 29. gives you three of them. By justice, a king or a leader gives a country stability. How many think that's important? How many think stability is an important commodity? You know, what happens when you don't have a king that produces justice? You have injustice, and eventually you have civil conflict. 
And how many have ever been in times when you, you know, the, the fruit of civil conflict is really difficult. I mean, you can see it. I can show you the fruit of civil conflict in a marriage. That's when a mother and father are fighting with each other and eventually they, the, the marriage comes apart. How painful is that for everybody involved? Not only the mom, not only the dad, but also the children. And then you think of civil conflict in the church. How many people have been involved in a church split where people are fighting between each other and the damage that's created there? Or how about in a country where they have civil conflict? You know, I was reading about Wellington, which is the guy that defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. He eventually became the prime minister of England. And he said this one time, he said, after being in civil conflict in Spain for many, many years, there was an issue in England at the time. He said, I would never want to spend even one hour addressing civil conflict. It's that terrible. That's, that's saying a lot. It says, if a ruler listens to lies, all his officials become wicked. In other words, if you want to keep listening to what people are telling you and you know there are lies, eventually everyone's going to tell you what you want to hear. A bunch of lies. If a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. Is that amazing? You know, sometimes as, as, as leaders, you want to play to the people you're serving and you're playing to their, you're appealing to their, you know, basically you, you want their support. But sometimes as a leader, you make a tough decision. You don't always get their support. But if you're doing the right thing, the moral thing, the thing before God that's honorable and right, God says, listen, I'm watching all of this stuff. I'm the one who establishes people in leadership. You know, I know we live in a democracy, and I know a lot of people think, well, we're in by the people and we're out by the people. I'm going to say you're in by God and you're out by God. People are just the vehicle and the tool that's being utilized to do that. So what are the wisdom writers trying to explain to us? That leaders need to do the right thing on behalf of those that they lead, and it'll bring stability. It'll bring... Uh, a. And this comes out of a strong moral foundation. When we build leadership on a strong moral foundation, the right things will be accomplished. Notice the warning that if leaders listen to, uh, I've already said that lies, all of their counselors become wicked. So what are the takeaways from these Proverbs? Those who are responsible for others are called to live a self-governed life, a moral life. I believe that. Strong moral foundations make for good leaders as they take their responsibilities seriously and realize that they're accountable ultimately to God. Stephen Mansfield in his book, Ten Tortured Words, discusses what the American founding fathers meant by the idea that is constantly brought up today, the issue of separation of church and state. We've heard these words a lot. They're American words, but you know, Canada has been deeply influenced by these thoughts. I know because I hear it all the time, even living here. But what does that really mean? And what was the concept behind it? And what doesn't it mean? I think we're confused. I want to just quote Stephen Mansfield. He said, these were the first 10 words on the American Bill of Rights. Later on, I'll mention the Canadian Bill of Rights, so don't dismiss me. They were actually a miracle of history. He said, for the first time in human experience, the legislative power of a nation was forbidden from legislating the conscience of man. That's powerful. There would be no establishment of religion, no state church or official religion. In other words, what they were saying was the government could not create their own religion. They couldn't make any one religion the dominant religion or the only religion in the country. That's what they were saying. But then he said this. This is important. Faith would be celebrated 
not commanded. Worship would be protected, but not prescribed. In other words, there would be an opportunity to worship as one saw fit, persuaded in their own conscience. The fathers had even guaranteed it with a second phrase they added to these historical first words. Not only would Congress make no law respecting an establishment of religion, but it would also never prohibit the free exercise thereof. That's a very powerful statement. What does that mean? They would not interfere in the people's worship of God. That's powerful. Today we find a movement away from strong religious and moral foundations. What we see is a movement towards secular humanistic approach to life where behavior and leaders are not seen as critical to their function. The results are chaotic, destabilizing, and injurious to those they are called to serve and to protect. Mansfield writes that the difference between the American experiment and what happened in France in the 1700s, late 1700s, and early 1800s can best be expressed by Alexander Hamilton. Do you know who he is? He was one of the founding fathers of the United States Constitution. He wrote the Federalist Papers with James Madison and a few others. He wrote a letter to his friend, the Marquis de Lafayette. By the way, the Marquis de Lafayette was actually sent by France to the Americans to help them in their revolution. Now he goes back home, and 20 years later, France has its own revolution, but it's entirely different than the American one. So this is what Hamilton says in his letter to Lafayette regarding the French Revolution now, years later. He says, When I contemplate the horrid and systematic massacres of Jacobins, Jacobins. Now, how many know anything about the French Revolution? Anybody know anything about it? A little bit, right? I just call it the Revolution of the Guillotine. That's all they, they had invented that crazy thing, and people were being killed left, right, and center. The king was killed, the queen was killed, royalty were killed. Pretty soon everybody's getting killed. It was wild. He said, When I find the doctrine, doctrines of atheism openly advanced in the convention and heard with loud applause, they actually took the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris and put a prostitute on the altar and celebrated and craziness. That's how wild it got. They were celebrating the absence of God in their culture. He said, I acknowledge that I'm glad to believe there's no real resemblance between what was the cause of America and what is the cause of France, that the difference is no less great than the difference between liberty and licentiousness. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying there's no difference. He said that it's, it's, it's no greater difference between being free and being a slave to sin. That's what he's saying. How many know, we understand correctly from Scripture, we have a freedom from sin. As a child of God, we have a freedom from sin. If we're a non-believer, they think true freedom is a freedom to sin. Isn't that right? And the only problem is, when you sin, you're not free anymore. You're taken into its captivity and into its slavery. So what about Canada? In the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms of 1982, it says, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. i got to stop and pause and ask the question. As Canadians today, do we recognize as a nation the supremacy of God? As a general culture, do we recognize the supremacy of God? Not really. That's the problem, and that's where we're at today. 
So what's, what can we do about it? Because as we read the charter, listen to what some of the things it says. Everyone has the following fundamental freedoms as a Canadian. The freedom of conscience and religion. The freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication. Freedom of peaceful assembly and freedom of association. And we will only retain these freedoms if we understand not in mere words, but truly recognize the supremacy of God in his moral laws. And if we don't do that, we will lose every one of those freedoms. So let's stand as we close today. You say, where does it begin, Pastor? You know, I know that there's a growing unrest inside of people's hearts. I'm aware of it. But here's where it needs to begin. The first step, if we're going to see transformation in our nation, begins in the human heart. That's what Wilberforce found, said. If you want reformation, it begins within. It starts within our own hearts. I believe well, what we need to do is cry out to God. We need to ask God to come and, and reveal himself to us anew and afresh. Because sometimes in our frustration about the way things are, we can take the wrong means to try to get to the right ends. What are the right means? We need to hear from God. We need to walk in God's grace. We need to walk in God's mercy and God's love and God's understanding and God's wisdom. We need to have a moral foundation in our own lives. We need to have this, this self-governance of our own soul and then it extends into our households. How can we be leaders outside if we can't even get our own household in order. You see what I'm talking about? It starts there. And you know, the Bible actually says that if you want to be a leader in the house of God, you have to have your own household in order. If your household is out of order, you can't be a leader that's going to bring order to the, 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 the greater group. It won't happen. That's not going to happen that way. But let's go into our nation. If our lives are so out of order, how can we lead a city or lead a, a province or lead a nation? We can't do it. We're going to have anarchy and, and uh, destabilization and chaos. We need to be praying, God, we need the Spirit of God to come and bring a real move of God where there's a real revival inside of our individual souls that will affect our homes and begin to affect our neighborhoods and the places where we work and it affects our city and it affects our nation. We need to have people rise up who God is calling into realms of leadership who know how to control themselves and understand that their responsibility is to serve the needs of other people but it begins inside of our hearts. It begins inside of us. And so while we're standing here, let's ask God to help us. Let's ask God to help us have self-control in our lives and to be able to self-govern ourselves and be able to have an impact in our own families. And then we can extend beyond that. We can influence people because they see you know, that our lives are in order and that we're under the supremacy of Almighty God and that we're following the moral laws of God in our own lives. So, Father, we pray today that you would do an amazing work inside of us. Lord, because I believe if we live the best kind of life, the one that's yielded and submitted to you, that we would become the best citizens possible. 
We would become the best husbands and the best wives possible. We'd become the best kids possible, Lord. We would become the best students in our school, not with, about academics or grades, but just the kind of person that you can honor with our lives, that we would become a, a, a city on a hill. We would become salt. We would become light to our world, Lord, that we would be able to be uh, a people that you could use to have an amazing impact and influence in the lives of people around us, oh God. I pray, Father, that you would do this work in us, that we would see your spirit working in a profound new way, that we would recognize that our, our own uh, justification for doing the wrong thing is actually part of the problem is each one of us does not stand for what is right within our own soul, Father. How can we go out with any sort of uh, significance and any sort of power to impact the lives of people around us? I pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in us so that you can do an amazing work through us. And that, Lord, even as we, you know, we talked about William Wilberforce, Lord, becoming a conscience of a nation. We talked about all of the wonderful things that he was able to bring into his nation because, Lord, he, he, he basically stood for what was right in your sight and, and rallied people. But he himself was living the life. He himself was nurturing his own family and had his own household in order. And then he could extend beyond into the nation. Lord, help us to become those kinds of people, Lord that you can use in this hour in a nation that's in turmoil and darkness and confusion. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.